The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Targeted Compliments, Exploring New Horizons Designed to Address Gaps in Treating Compliment-Associated Kidney Diseases. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FSW 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. My name is Gerald Appel from Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. Welcome to this educational activity on complement therapies for glomerular disease. Joining me today in this discussion is my co-director at the Glomerular Center at Columbia University Medical Center, Dr. Andy Bombeck. So we're going to be recognizing the signs and suspecting the unexpected, the pathophysiology behind complement-mediated associated diseases. Now, complement-associated kidney disease are not commonly occurring diseases. This is the estimated global incidence. If you take C3 glomerulopathy, there are about one to three new cases per million people worldwide. Very rare disease. Atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, 0.23 to 1.9 new cases per million worldwide. Again, a rare disease. Then we get into two more common diseases of the glomerular filters, IgA nephropathy and membranous nephropathy. And here you'll find many more new cases here, but again, for the average person, they are uncommon diseases. When we think about complement activation, it's important in the pathogenesis of many different diseases. We'll be talking about the pathways of the complement system in a few minutes. But first, it's important to realize that the alternate pathway is involved in atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, C3 glomerulopathy, post-infectious glomerulonephritis, and ANCA-associated vasculitis. Immune complex diseases, lupus nephritis, IgA nephropathy, membranous cryos, etc. And then there are those indications where there's kidney allograft injury with delayed graft function, antibody-mediated rejection, and T-cell-mediated rejection. All of these have involvement of the complement system. Let's take a quick look at this 3D animation to remind you of the complement system and how its dysregulation can have negative effects in some people. The complement system mediates the clearance of foreign pathogens through opsonization and lysis. Hepatocytes in the liver synthesize small complement proteins, which circulate in the blood as inactive precursors awaiting activation. When the complement proteins detect a foreign structure, they activate. Proteases in the system cleave specific proteins, releasing components that associate together to form downstream convertases, setting off an amplifying cascade of further cleavages. C3 convertase plays a major role in activation. Then, C5 convertase cleaves C5. The C5B cleavage product initiates the attack on the invader in a very organized way, directing several additional complement components to form a membrane attack complex, a pore that breaches the invader's cell membrane and destroys the invader. C3A and C5A are pro-inflammatory factors and actively recruit phagocytes to clear foreign pathogens and damaged material. Although crucial for defense from pathogens, the complement system has the potential to be extremely damaging to bodily tissues, so its activation must be tightly regulated. 
Some forms of glomerulonephritis result from complement dysregulation and activation of complement components in the glomeruli, damaging the kidney. Now, my colleague, Andy Baumbach, will now go through the different pathways here and talk about the lectin, classical, and alternative pathway. Andy. Uh, thank you very much, Jerry. It's important when we think about the contribution of complement to the pathogenesis of glomerular diseases that we focus on which pathway or pathways of complement are involved in that injury. We think of three major pathways of complement activation, the classical pathway, the lectin pathway, and the alternative pathway. The classical pathway is the pathway that's most likely to be activated in a traditional immune complex form of glomerulonephritis. This would be exemplified, for example, by lupus nephritis. The pathway is not on, but it's triggered to turn on by binding of antibodies to antigens as part of an immune complex. And you can see that there are specific complement proteins, C1, C2, C4, that are intrinsic to the classical pathway that you will look for when you think about the pathogenesis of these diseases. The lectin pathway, in contrast, is triggered not by immune complexes, but by circulating carbohydrates on viruses and bacteria when they engage with mannin-binding lectin. An example of a glomerular disease that we believe has significant contributions from lectin pathway activity is membranous nephropathy, which we'll hear about later. But again, focus here on specific complement proteins that are part of the lectin pathway, but may not be seen in other complement pathways. The alternative complement pathway is the pathway that is getting the most interest currently with complement targeting drugs, because this is a pathway that is very unique from the classical and lectin pathways. This pathway, unlike the classical and lectin pathway, is constitutively active. There is spontaneous hydrolysis that keeps this pathway going even in states of health. But what we'll see in some of the complement-mediated disease that we discuss is that this pathway goes from being constitutively active at a low level to hyperactive at a high level, and that leads to disease. Once again, I would like you to focus here on the pathway and that there are specific proteins that are intrinsic to the alternative pathway that we haven't seen in the classical and lectin pathway. For example, factor B, factor D, and of course, a key contribution from C3 and its breakdown components. Jerry, would you like to take over talking about the clinical tests we do in terms of figuring out where complement has been activated? Certainly. So there are functional tests, and these include hemolytic assays, one for total complement, CH50, and one for the alternate pathway hemolytic activity. We can also measure the activity of the classical lectin and alternative pathways, and we can identify patients with congenital and acquired deficiencies and monitor complement function. Probably for the clinician, the most important thing is measuring levels of complement components and cleavage products. Certainly, C3, the third component of complement, and C4 are very important. Their breakdown products, C3, C, and D, and now the membrane attack complex, C5B through 9, which is important in terms of killing pathogens, but also may be important in damage to the kidney. 
There are autoantibodies that target complement proteins. We have nephritic factors. We have antibodies that can affect the C3 and the C4 convert the C5 convertase. We have anti-factor H antibodies that block factor H, an inhibitory protein. And there are other antibodies that, again, can affect the entire complement cascade. And then there are disease-associated genetic variants. And these, again, can pick out certain specific diseases. We have diseases of the alternate pathway where there are genetic defects in an inhibitory protein factor H. This leads to activation of the system. So this slide shows you the entire uh, evaluation here and the diagnostic workup. And I want to emphasize two things here. One is that renal biopsy is still the diagnostic criteria for looking at these diseases here and showing the role of complement. Secondly, very important in people who are above the age of 50, many of these people will have a monoclonal disease, a paraprotein, and this is interacting with the complement system, revving it up or blocking inhibitors, and this leads to activation of the disease. So yes, we're interested in complement biomarkers, we're interested in the paraprotein, we want to rule out infections for post-infectious GN, we want to look at specific staining, is there C3 as opposed to C3 plus immunoglobulins and other complement components. All of this is part of the diagnostic workup. Andy, why don't you take over here and just talk about the different forms of dysregulation? Thank you. One of the key missions as you're working up a patient where you suspect that complement activation is part of the pathogenesis of their disease is to try to pinpoint which of those three pathways is involved with the disease. There are some diseases, for example, IgA nephropathy and infectious-related glomerulonephritis, where more than one pathway is involved. But there are some diseases exemplified here by C3 glomerulopathy and atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome that are clearly pinpointing the alternative complement pathway as the sole pathway whose activity is involved in glomerular injury. These diseases share some etiologies. For example, C3 glomerulopathy and atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome both show uh, a, a small percentage of patients who can have mutations or genetic variants in certain complement factors like factor H. However, if you look closer at these genetic variants, they're different for C3 glomerulopathy versus atypical HUS. And those differences translate into differences in terms of how complement is dysregulated in these patients. With atypical HUS, we talk about solid phase abnormalities in the way complement is being activated at the level of the cell surface. In C3 glomerulopathy, we talk about fluid phase abnormalities, where the complement abnormality is in the plasma level. And this leads to very different versions of disease. Atypical HUS is actually a much more homogenous disease, where we pretty much can expect very significant degrees of kidney involvement and eventual progression to kidney failure. With C3 glomerulopathy, in contrast, because the defect is in the fluid phase, you can see a very heterogeneous presentation across the spectrum of C3 glomerulopathy patients, from somewhat mild disease to rapidly progressive glomerulonephritis. As Jerry mentioned, the biopsy is so important in trying to differentiate which complement pathways are involved in the disease 
and which specific disease you are looking at. Here we're comparing the staining for complement protein 3 and the membrane attack complex, the terminal complement cascade, in normal kidneys versus patients with C3 glomerulopathy. And what you see here is very specific tissue-level evidence of hyperactivity of the alternative complement pathway because you see this very heavy deposition of C3, you see this very heavy deposition of membrane attack complex, and you see that alongside no deposition of immunoglobulins. So it's clearly complement-mediated injury without any contribution from immune globulins or immune complexes. It's the alternative pathway overactivity that's driving this injury. We also look at electron microscopy to try to subtype the versions of C3 glomerulopathy that we see. So if you look at the electron microscopy images here, you see the very classic sausage-shaped, very electron-dense osmophilic deposits of dense deposit disease in the intramembranous region of the glomerular basement membrane. You can contrast that with the more common version called C3 glomerulonephritis, where the deposits are not as intense staining and they're scattered throughout um, the epithelial and subendothelial spaces. The biopsy findings can be very helpful if you're trying to figure out, am I seeing a complement-mediated form of thrombotic microangiopathy, which is another term that we use for atypical HUS, versus non-complement-mediated forms of thrombotic microangiopathy. And so some of the, the classic findings that would tip you off to look for alternative pathway dysregulation as a driver in the thrombotic microangiopathy are these microthrombi that you see in the glomerular capillaries. And then on immunofluorescence, the staining would show intense fibrin deposition in the peripheral capillary walls. So I'm going to push this back now to Dr. Appel, who will talk about IgA nephropathy again as a uh, model of the role of complement in disease pathogenesis. So Andy has just talked about two diseases that are involved with the alternate pathway. IgA nephropathy is certainly has complement involvement. It's a four-hit hypothesis. You first have elevated levels of an abnormal IgA molecule. The IgA globulin has, instead of normal sugar distribution, it is deficient in galactose residues. Antibodies, anti-glycan antibodies form against this. Step three is the formation of immune complexes these land in the mesangial and other areas of the glomerular filters and lead to complement activation. And in part, this may be all due to the manoselectin system, but it may be due to other pathways as well. But again, its complement is a playing a role in IgA nephropathy. If you look at IgA nephropathy, and you can see from the pictures here that there is slight inflammation in the mesangial areas. You can see the increased nuclei on that light microscopy H&E. And then if you look at immunofluorescence, there are IgA deposits. And these immune deposits are in the mesangial area in most patients, but they can also be along the capillary wall. And then you can see under the electron microscopy, the arrows point to mesangial electron-dense deposits. But we also know there are complement components, as you can see from the histochemical staining, that are found in patients with IgA nephropathy. Now, another disease which has complement involvement, which is again a more common disease, IgA and membranous are common diseases as opposed to atypical HUS and C3 nephropathy. But membranous nephropathy is a disease in which it's an autoantibody disease. 
and antibodies form, against, in the most common situation, against the M-type phospholipase A2 receptor. These antigen-antibody complexes land in the subepithelial location. They're right on the border of the podocyte between the basement membrane here, and they lead to progressive damage, proteinuria. And again, complement is involved in this. If we look at membranous nephropathy, there are IgG4 deposits, the subtype of IgG in the subepithelial space. There is also complement, we know, in the subepithelial space. That, and we know that the IgG complexes, the IgG4 complexes here, are composed of IgG against PLA2R, phospholipase A2 receptor. So an autoantibody response here, again, leading to a glomerular disease, but complement is involved, and you can see the C3 staining, which is common there in membranous nephropathy. Let's take a look into the future. We have new therapies that are bringing new hope for patients with complement-associated kidney diseases. This slide shows you a number of the clinical trials on complement inhibition in kidney disease. We have targets of C5, the C5A receptor, C3, factor B, factor D, and in the lectin pathway as well. Some of the drugs are FDA-approved already, like eculizumab and rabulizumab and avacapan. Others are being studied in phase two and phase three studies here. Great progress recently and more progress to be made in the very near future. So if we look at this, C3 glomerulopathy serves as a prototype for all of this. Why is that so? Because you can very specifically localize most of the times in this disease where the defect is. Some people have a genetic defect. Some people have a antibody-mediated defect. And you can block that defect and know with specific drugs that block factor D, factor B, etc., that, uh, that that's what they're doing. And you can show that that's going to make the difference. So in thinking about this, that C3 glomerulopathy, a rare disease, is very important in terms of our understanding of the newer therapies for blocking the complement system. Just talking about this, it's important to realize that proteinuria is a very good prognostic marker for what's going to happen to your patient with many different glomerular diseases, and it's a therapeutic target for C3 glomerulopathy. The urine-protein-creatinine ratio is inversely related to the GFR, and a decrease in the urine-protein-creatinine ratio over time is associated with improvement in the GFR. And there are certain medications now that are being studied. Iptacopan is being studied as a factor B blocker associated with protein reductions, which then should lead to improvement in C3 levels and less glomerular disease. So let's now look at some of these newer agents Andy's spending a lot of time studying some of these, so tell us about what we can do with these new drugs. Thank you, Jerry. As you said, this is a very exciting time for trying to treat some of these complement-mediated glomerular diseases because we now have agents that target specific parts of the complement pathway. And we do all of that diagnostic workup that we talked about earlier. We do all of that searching as to which part of complement is overactive, which part of complement is involved in the injury, with the hope that we'll be able to come up with a precision medicine approach that targets that area that is overactive and driving the disease. So we're going to go through 
a, a number of different agents that are under investigation right now that we hope will hold out some promise of giving that sort of targeted therapy against these complement-associated kidney diseases. Iptacopan, as you mentioned uh, previously, a factor B inhibitor, is being studied now in C3 glomerulopathy as well as in IgA nephropathy. Here is the design of the C3 glomerulopathy study of Iptacopan that is called APPEAR. And what I really like about this study is that it's clearly set up to show whether or not this drug will work and help our patients through a six-month placebo-controlled uh, portion of the trial where we'll look at changes in kidney function, changes in proteinuria, as well as changes in the kidney biopsy itself. But then after those six months, there's a six-month open-label extension where all patients who are part of the trial will get the, the drug Iptacopan. And this is something that we heard from patients with C3 glomerulopathy, that they're happy to participate in clinical trials, they're eager to do so, and even do placebo-controlled trials as long as they have access to the drug. This is data that comes from a phase two study of Iptacopan in C3 glomerulopathy, and it's very encouraging signals that came out of that phase two study, which is admittedly a small study, but it showed significant drops in proteinuria, significant improvements in kidney function, and not shown here, significant improvements in C3 levels for most of the patients in that phase two study, which is why we're able to now feel confident moving forward doing a phase three study uh, the APPEAR study that I just reviewed. And as I mentioned, Iptacopan is also being studied not just in C3 glomerulopathy, but also in IgA nephropathy. And here is, again, small, uh, small subject numbers from phase two studies showing significant reductions in proteinuria in IgA nephropathy patients who received Iptacopan compared to those who got placebo. So 30% reduction at three months, 40% reduction in proteinuria at six months. These are the type of clinically meaningful changes in proteinuria that we think will benefit our IgA nephropathy patients long-term if they're shown in a subsequent phase three study of more patients. And again, one of the exciting things about these drugs, as we see them working with clinical improvement, we're also seeing evidence that they work at the level of disease. So in the IgA nephropathy study, not only do we see proteinuria reductions, which we can get with other drugs, but we're also seeing improvements of biomarkers of complement activation. So some signal that this agent is actually working at the pathogenic mechanism of disease. There are other complement targeting agents under investigation. Here we're looking at BCX9930, which is a factor D inhibitor. And this is again a small early phase study, but what they're showing is that this agent is able to get control of a alternative pathway overactivity in C3 glomerulopathy patients. So you see activity of the alternative pathway being measured, and as soon as the patients are put onto BCX9930, that level goes down to normal levels that you would see in healthy subjects. So from hyperactivity to normal activity. PEG-cetacoplan, which is a C3 inhibitor, has also been studied in a phase two study of C3 glomerulopathy, and like Iptacopan, also showed very promising results in a small sample of patients with C3 glomerulopathy. Here we're looking at five subjects who completed a course of the, of the therapy. Their proteinuria dropped significantly from about three and a half grams per day to one gram per day. Their albumin correspondingly improved. Their C3 levels improved. So again, giving us a signal of, of complement activity coming under control and their kidney function looks slightly better at the end of the treatment. So as we saw with the tacopan, this 
promising phase two data on pegsitacoplan has now uh, fueled phase three studies looking at the use of this drug in both C3 glomerulopathy and immune complex MPGN in both native and transplanted kidneys. In terms of C5 targeting therapy, as we heard earlier, avacopan, which is a C5A receptor blocker that has already been approved in the use of ANCA-associated vasculitis, including ANCA-associated glomerulonephritis, essentially as a steroid substitute, has also been studied in C3 glomerulopathy. So this was actually the first large-scale randomized trial of a complement-targeting drug done in C3 glomerulopathy. Like the studies I mentioned earlier, uh, using Iptacopan and Pegsitacopan, this study relied on repeat biopsies to look for an effect of C5A receptor, receptor blockade on the disease. And what I'm showing you here is the group that was initially randomized to placebo what happened to them after they were crossed over to active drug? So after six months of placebo, you can see that most of the patients here on the left uh, of this slide, their chronicity on the kidney biopsy, the chronic damage being accumulated uh, on the kidney biopsy went up for most of those patients. When they were then crossed over to the active drug of Acopen, their chronicity appeared to stop increasing. So that's a very important signal because we know these diseases are chronic and lead to end-stage kidney disease over time. So if you can potentially halt the scarring process, you might be able to modify that natural history of disease. I'm going to hand it over to Jerry to give some conclusions on what we talked about today. I think it's very clear that this is a very exciting time in nephrology. We have several several available complement-targeted agents already that are making their way through clinical trials. We have drugs that are approved already. And, and the amazing thing is that we have patients that are involved in these studies because they want to be. They're more willing to accept any risk. And there is a risk of infection when you block the complement system. But they're willing to accept this risk when the disease is clearly progressive, when they know that they may get benefit out of something that would otherwise not be treatable. Biopsies are helpful, but not requirements for this. Patients are much more likely to enroll in a trial with an investigational agent if it's clearly aimed at a disease and their disease and a specific patient-targeted therapy here. So that's why these complement blockers are so important. So uh, at this point, I'll ask Andy if you have any other thoughts in terms of the future for this and, uh, and our, where we're headed with our complement-based therapeutics. Yeah, well, first I would say I, I agree with you. It's an extremely exciting time to be working in this space. And I would, you know, recommend everybody keep their eyes on, on this space because we expect a lot of exciting data to come out of these trials. And I think the other thing to consider is that we, we've spent a lot of time talking about relatively rare diseases like C3 glomerulopathy, but we also talked about more common diseases like IgA nephropathy and membranous nephropathy. And we know that even more common kidney diseases have complement as part of their pathogenesis. So we're doing trials in some of the rare diseases, but if these drugs work there, we expect they probably will be able to be used in other less rare forms of kidney disease. And that's part of the reason why this is so exciting. Well, this concludes our discussion for today. Andy, thanks so much for sharing all this, these insights with us. We hope that all of you have gotten as much out of this discussion as we have, and we thank you for your participation. This activity is certified by the University of Cincinnati.
This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FSW 860. This activity is supported by an education grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.